And so I drove to Mississippi. I got that boat and was so excited. It was red and white, brought it home. And man, I, I just remember thinking to myself, now I am a real Louisiana fisherman. I, I own my own boat. Whether or not I can catch fish or not, I'm going to look good in my own boat going into the bayou. And man, I took that boat out and, and took it out several times. Things were okay with the boat those times that I took it out. But then everything was fine until it wasn't fine. And for those of you that have been boat owners, you know what I'm talking about. Because I ended up stranded with two of my kids on the boat. Now, being stranded in a place besides Louisiana is not that big a deal. But being stranded in the dark, surrounded by eyes popping up out of the water, is a little bit of a different kind of feeling. And it was getting dark, and we couldn't get the motor to start. Now, just so you know, if, if you're getting to know me, I know there's some of you that are newer, and you're here from Easter, so we're getting to know each other. You have to know something about me. I am the least mechanical, and I promise this is not an over-exaggeration. I am the least mechanical person you have ever met in your entire life. All of the renovations, everything that has happened in this facility in the last year, I just want you to look this way, they have nothing to do with me, okay? But we have a whole bunch of tools at our house. Those are not my tools. Those are my wife's tools. Let's, I'm digressing. Let's move on. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get the boat started. I didn't know what it was. You know, and there's different people when I tell them the story that are mechanical, and they're like, well, the problem was the, you know, whatever wire to the thingamajigger, and if you would have just done that, and I'm like, I have no idea. You are speaking Greek to me right now, you know? And I couldn't get it started. Finally, we got it. We actually got stranded on top of a sandbar, and we had to push our way, and I, I actually didn't have any oars, which is also a mistake, uh, and, and so we had to literally, I took a flip-flop that I had on and used it to get us out, I mean, literally to row us out and, and get us back to safety in that boat, and I didn't learn my lesson the first time. I took it out again. This time, I took it out with my spiritual father, who's not from Louisiana, and I wanted to impress him. I wanted to impress him about my new boat, fishing in Louisiana, catching bats, bass and redfish around the alligators, and I was so excited. I said, you know what? I'm going all the way with this. Let's go out to Lake Pontchartrain. And so I went out to Lake Pontchartrain with my spiritual dad, and everything was going good. I got us all the way out to our spot. The motor started just fine. I had had it repaired at that point, so I think everything's okay. And then we went to leave that spot where we weren't catching any fish. And, and so we were there. If you've got to know something else about me, I have ADHD. So I'm not going to fish long in a spot where we're not catching fish. And so, and so I, we went to leave that spot. And as we went to leave that spot, the motor wouldn't start. My spiritual dad is just a little older than me, and, he, and it's a hot summer day, middle of, I think it was July or August, and, and so he's getting warm, and, and he's trying to be a loving spiritual father, but I can tell that his flesh is kicking in. I can tell that, you know, he's looking at me, and he's saying, it's okay, but what he really means is, you're an idiot, and I can't believe that we are stuck out here on Lake Pontchartrain because you don't know what you're doing with your used boat from Mississippi. 
And so that was the last straw. That was a hard day. We actually had to have somebody tug us in uh, from another boat. A shrimp boat came by about an hour later and tugged us in. And, and, uh, and then I had them tug us to the wrong dock. And, uh, and so, I mean, the story, I'm not even going to go into the length of what happened that day. All I want to tell you is from that point on, I was done. I decided if you're going to have a boat, you gotta, you got to be able to do one of two things. Either you got to be in a tax bracket to own a brand new boat that doesn't go do have anything that goes wrong, or you got to be mechanical enough to be able to tinker with stuff to fix stuff. I don't fit in either of those categories. I'm not going to be a boat owner for the rest of my life. So I decided instead of owning a boat, I'm going to sell that boat, and I remember the day that it sold, y'all. It was one of the happiest days of my life. I mean, other than my kids being born and, and you know, me getting married, other than the day I gave my life to Jesus, that was literally up in one of the top five day, greatest days of my life. I couldn't believe somebody paid for it. And, uh, and so I decided instead of owning a boat, I'm getting a kayak. I'm going to be a kayak owner. Do you know why I love kayaks? Because there's no motor. There's nothing that can go wrong. I mean, I'm sure there is with me, but as far as I know, they're so easy. I mean, kayaks, literally, you just put them in the water, you row, it's great exercise too. I mean, nothing can go wrong. Very little can go wrong with a kayak. It's easy to own a kayak. And I just got to tell you, I am on my way to becoming a great kayak fisherman. And people say to me every once in a while, hey, you should get a boat because then you could go to different spots. And I tell them, don't even bring that subject up around me. I own a kayak because a kayak is easy. I don't own a boat and I never will the rest of my life unless somebody hands me $40,000 that I just don't have anything else to do with. And so I'm here today to tell you that this is the scenario that these people are facing in their life. Some of you are going, what does this have to do with Hebrews? I'm here today to tell you that what they are experiencing in the book of Hebrews is buyer's remorse. Have any of you ever had buyer's remorse? Come on, raise your hands if you've ever experienced buyer's remorse. Something that you were so excited about and you just couldn't wait to get your hands on it and then you got your hands on it and it just wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be. It ended up being more difficult or not working the way that you thought it was going to work. or It didn't fulfill that, that empty spot that you thought it was going to fulfill in your life. I'm here today to tell you that my kids, especially my son, my oldest son, he experiences buyer's remorse on a monthly basis. There is something we buy and he's no longer interested in that anymore. He moves on to the next thing. And then there's something that he's so excited about for Christmas, he, he unwraps it. Then he didn't, doesn't he want to do, it, do that anymore. There's buyer's remorse that all of us face, and there's buyer's remorse that happens in our spiritual lives. This is what's happening in the book of Hebrews. This book that was written in about 70, before 70 AD, by an unknown author. We don't know who the author was. All we really know about the author was that he was a fellow believer, that he had a, a deep belief in the Messiah, he had a deep belief in Jesus, and that he was a, a leader, and he's writing this letter. It's actually not, it's, it's the only book as far as we know of in the Bible that actually wasn't meant to be a letter. It was a manuscript that was meant 
to be read orally. In other words, it was a sermon that he wanted preached to the people. Or if you're a little, you know, a little more hip, it was the it was a first century or sorry, a second century podcast that he wanted read out loud to the people. And he writes them for a few different reasons. He's writing to a people that are experiencing buyer's remorse. For whatever reason, this second generation group of Christians, we know that they weren't first generation believers. We know that they probably most likely had not ever met Jesus. They probably had not ever talked to Jesus physically. They'd never heard his sermons. Uh, they, They had not experienced what it was like to walk and talk physically on the earth with him. But this, this group of believers most likely had known people who were, who had been around Jesus. They had known first century Christians, but they've been walking with Jesus. They're fellow Jews, and, and so they're Hebrews written to a group of Jewish believers. They did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They had left Judaism, but now they're starting to have a harder life. Life has gotten hard. Things are, are being experienced that, is ca- that are causing them to, to decide, are we going to keep going with this belief system of Jesus as the Messiah? Are we going to keep walking in this faith, this, this like full on, I'm following Jesus faith? They were, they were on the precipice deciding whether or not that they were going to keep going. For whatever reason, they were uh, experiencing the threat of persecution They had been ostracized from other uh, Jewish friends of theirs that had not turned to Jesus as the Messiah. And so there were now people that wouldn't do business with them anymore if they were business owners. Their life had gotten hard. And really as they were evaluating life, they were looking at life going, it's gotten harder, not easier since we decided to follow Jesus. And I don't really, I thought when we followed Jesus, life was going to be easier, not harder. I don't understand why life has gotten so hard. And so they're literally on the edge of what's called apostasy. And that's just a fancy word for they were about to walk away from their faith. And this this author, this unknown author, is writing to them and he's he's answering a question. It's a question that all of us in the room have asked. Uh, either in the past, maybe there's some of you that are actually asking this question right now in your life, and here's the question. The question is, is this worth it, and is this working? Is my faith in Jesus really worth it, and is my faith in Jesus really working? Is me following Jesus, is that making my life better, or is it making my life harder? Is it making my life easier? Is the path easier for me than it was before I was a Christ follower? Or is being a Jesus follower actually making my life more difficult, more complicated? Is this worth it? And is this working? And this unknown author is screaming, preaching to the people, and he's screaming this. He's screaming, it's worth it, and it is working. I promise you, Following Jesus is worth it, and it is working. And he wants to tell them, hey, Jesus is better than all of your questions. He's better than the persecution you're experiencing. Jesus is better than you returning back to Judaism. 
He's better than, than you debating whether or not you should keep going. He's the once and for all Savior. He's the once and for all Messiah. He has already accomplished. He did for you what you can't do, do for yourself. He is better. And I want to declare that to you this morning all across this room. Whatever you're facing, whatever is going on, Jesus is better. Following him is better. He is greater than all of the questions. He's greater than the hardships. He's greater than anything that we are facing. And the author wants to let him know, first of all, don't walk away from Jesus. Second of all, it's not time to chill out. It's not time to reevaluate. It's not time to think, to think about your options. It's not time to let off the gas pedal of your faith. Now is the time to press forward, to keep going, to put your, the, the, the pedal all the way to the metal of the floor. Now is the time to be radical, to keep moving forward. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't think about being lukewarm. Don't think about walking away. Now is the time to keep on going. He's letting them know. He's better than all that. And it's not time to chill out. It's not time to relax when it comes to your faith. And he's doing this by two, two different things. And the, the first thing he's doing is he is going to, to compare all of these Old Testament passages in the Bible to, to who Jesus currently is right now. And so as we read through this book, you're going to see the, the, the author over and over and over. He makes all these comparisons for, to the Old Testament. Now, here's what you got to understand. As they're reading this or as they're hearing this orally, they're going, yes, yes, yes. Most of us in the room that aren't familiar with the Old Testament like they were familiar with the Old Testament are going to be going, huh, huh, huh? So they're going, yes, yes. We're going, huh, huh? Because they understood. He's, he's using it as a persuasion tactic to help them understand this, that Jesus is better than them returning back to Judaism. Better than, than denying Christ and walking away so they'll have an easier life. The second thing that he does is he's not only using this comparison of the Old Testament, but he is also, uh, he is also comparing Jesus to everything. You're going to read about all these comparisons in Hebrews. In fact, the term better is actually used 13 times in this one book, 13 different times, the author says he's better than this. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the law. He's be- I mean, he just goes on and on, and he just keeps saying Jesus is better. He's better. He's, he's just better than all of that stuff. And some of you go, why, why have we chosen this series in our church? Well, I want to let you know something. We right now find ourselves in the United States of America in a great crisis. I want you to look at me, and I want you to hear me closely. We are in a crisis in the United States of America. We, and I don't, well, by we, I don't just mean saints community. I mean pastors and churches all over America that I am talking to are astounded of how many members have left and walked away, of how many attenders have just decided they're not coming back, of how many people have slipped out quietly and how many people are 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 even have gone from quietly dismissing Jesus 
and their faith to actually boldly, publicly speaking against Jesus and against Christianity, and you're seeing it all over. People are denying Christ. They're denying the the faith of their youth, the faith of their childhood. They are walking away from Jesus. We are also in a state of spiritual decline where we are seeing people that are apathetic. Yes, they may be going to church once or twice a month. Yes, they they have a mental assent of, yes, I do believe in God. I, I do believe in Jesus. But they are not radically living out their faith to the point where it is changing their life every day. We've had things staring us in the face for the past year, year and a half. Hello? I mean, things like a pandemic. Hello? That is literally encouraged people, it is a, it has now become a tool that the enemy has used to, 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 to distract and detour people from their faith. We've had systemic racism staring us in the face as a sin of prejudice and a sin of systemic racism that has been staring at us in the face that we've got to deal with as a church, hello? These are not social issues These are gospel issues, by the way. Racism is not a social issue. It is a gospel issue, hello? You cannot be prejudiced. You cannot have racism and buy into systemic racism in your life. You cannot do that as a Jesus follower. I just thought I'd throw that in there. That was free. Not even in my notes. Let's move on. Systemic racism staring at us. That sin staring at us in the face, prejudice, a pandemic. And the centrality of Christ has been lost in all of this. Now, church leaders are trying to come up with all kinds of gimmicks to get people to come back to church. They are, I mean, listen, y'all, look this way. I want you to hear me. Pastors are getting desperate. They're, I am talking to friends of mine that have lost 50%, 70% of their church and let alone pe- new people that they're trying to reach. And they're, they're saying, well, maybe if we, you know, bring Bozo the Clown in and Foo Foo the Dog. And, and you know, and, and, you know it, and there's other pastors that are going, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to get on Facebook. I'm going to rebuke everybody. I'm just going to tell them all they stink. You know, they're no good. They're going to hell. If you don't return to, Je- you know, to church, you don't even love Jesus. And I was like, well, hey, go ahead and do that. Tell me how that works out for you, you know. We're dealing with political issues that have divided the church and divided the world. People that have actually bought into the fact that the Constitution is the Bible. (laughs) It's not the Bible. Hello? People that have bought into, my rights. Well, that's part of the Constitution. That's not the Bible, y'all. In fact, if you really study the Bible, everybody in the Bible that really did something great for God laid down their rights. I mean, let's start with Jesus, right? So all of this is just staring at us in the face. And here's the question that many are asking. They're asking this question. Is this worth it? And is this working? Pastors are even asking, is this worth it? And is this working? We've had more pastors resign in the last year than ever before because They can't get people to come back because they're criticized if they do or criticized if they don't. They're criticized for, you know, wearing masks. They're criticized if we don't wear masks. I mean, it's just, you just can't win. And so 
pastors and congregations and people are asking the question, is this really worth it? And is this really working? And the author of Hebrews answers that question for them and he answers it for us. And here's how he starts. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, now let's just stop right there because the author is basically starting out by, by connecting these Hebrew believers, these former Jewish believers, to their past. And he's saying, hey, the, the word of God has come to us in many different ways. It's come through prophets, which are just messengers from God. And then he just says, and in various other ways, the word of God has come to us. And then he, he uses this term, the last days. Now let's talk about that term for just a second, because there are some that are enamored with the last days, and that's okay, you know, to, to you know, study Revelation and all of that, and, you know, the last days. Are we in the last days? And I just want to tell you, yes, we are in the last days. We've actually been in the last days for 2,000 years, because the last days are actually, all that means when you see that in Scripture, that just means there's no new section coming. Since Jesus died, rose from the dead, went back to heaven, we're now in the last days. So when, when you see last days, that doesn't mean like the months before Jesus returns again. It doesn't mean any of that. It means, hey, we're in the last days. They were in the last days. We're in the last days. We don't know how much longer we will be in the last days. And again, I'm not discouraging you if you like to study you know what it's going to be like when Jesus returns I would just beg you don't get too focused on that because Jesus actually said you don't know the day you don't know the hour and I found something really uh, powerful in my life when I focus on the unclear of scripture it distracts me from what is clear in scripture so the last days he says he connects them to it it's a broad term and then he says he has spoken to us in the last days by his what? By his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through, through whom also he made the universe. Now look at verse 3 with me. The son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact, everybody say exact. Come on, say exact. He's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He is saying, hey, Jesus is superior to all those other ways that you receive God. He's more superior than the way you receive through the prophets. He's more superior than the various ways you've heard God's voice and seen God. He's greater than all of those. And then he, he paints these two different metaphors, the radiance of God. It's like you can almost see a sun with its light shining. And then he says, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Now, let me just explain this, okay? I'm going to explain this in, a modern, in modern terms. I have here an iPhone. I was excited because uh, my phone died recently, and we kind of live in our house and really even in our, on our church staff with if it, ain't, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, you know? And so sometimes there's, there's times where we're not getting a new phone and it's outdated because it ain't broke yet. And so my iPhone broke recently, and I don't know why I'm telling you all this. That's ADHD kicking in. Let's move on. And so, when there's some apps on my phone, okay? Now, for those of you that, that, you know, maybe you don't have a phone like this, maybe you've still got a flip phone or, you know, something like that, um, he, there's these, thing called, these things called apps. And 
And when I push, there's one app on here, it's got a blue and white uh, square on it with a big F. Okay, what does that stand for? Facebook. When I push that app, everything Facebook comes alive to me. It's like, oh, a whole new world is opened up to me, the world of Facebook. There's this other app on here. It's red and white, and it's got like a little you know, like circ- half-circle deal. And when I push that app, everything, capital one, is opened up to me. So I push that. And by the way, I don't, I don't push it super often. Uh, but everything, capital one, is, is opened up to me. There's another app. It's one of my favorite apps. Sometimes I open it with hands trembling. I'm so excited. And it's got a big E on it. And the big E, it's red and white. And when I push it, everything ESPN comes alive. Stats, stories, statistics, man, game, game clips. It all comes alive to me. And and then I try to get off it, but it's really, really hard for me to get off ESPN. Everything comes alive. Here's what I'm trying to say. Those apps, when I push them, everything comes alive ESPN. Everything comes alive Facebook. Everything comes alive Capital One. Everything comes alive Oshner Fitness. I've been opening that more recently. Pray for me. If you want to know how to make God come alive, Look at the life of Jesus. I thought that would get a better. Anyway. If you want to know how to make God, what does God look like? Look at Jesus. What does God talk like? Look at Jesus. What does God think like? Look at Jesus. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Jesus is not only God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is not just God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. In other words, sometimes we spend so much time emphasizing that it was God in the flesh that we don't stop and say, hey, it wasn't just God in the flesh. It was God in the flesh. He's God, y'all. If you want to look at the exact representation of who God is, all you have to do, look no further than looking at Jesus. And it is based on this elevated view of Jesus that the rest of Hebrews has opened up to us. He's helping them understand right in these beginning verses, these poetic verses on, based on Christology. He's trying to set everything up to say, hey, it's all about Jesus. This elevated view of Jesus is where we are headed. So look at verse, verse 5 with me. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he, and, I, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companion by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits set to serve those who will inherit salvation? You say, okay, I mean, I was good with the first three verses, but why this big, long rant about angels? He's making his first comparison. He's saying, hey, some of you think angels are incredible. <laughs> they ain't nothing like the Son of God. And, and here's what this is based on. He knows that according to Deuteronomy chapter 33, uh, verse 2, that the angel, there was an angel that was involved on, when, on Mount Sinai when the Torah was delivered to Moses, that an angel delivered that, and so they go, hey, the angels were the messengers that came to deliver how God wanted people to live and to deliver how we would have right relationship with God. He's speaking to those people that instead of the way you look, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know they would go, yes, yes, yeah, they would get that because they understood Deuteronomy, and they go, okay, the, the angel messenger was awesome, and he's saying, yeah, the angel was just a messenger. The Son of God is so much better than the angels, so much better than the old law, the Torah that was delivered on Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not, what? So that we don't what? What's it say? Oh, it's not on the screen. Okay, let me read it for you. I kept going, why aren't they answering? Why aren't they answering? It's not on the screen. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Hmm. He's saying, hey, you're in danger right now of drifting away. You're in danger right now of drifting away. I want to tell you that 90% of the people who are not in church, who decide, who, who, who fall away from Jesus, most of them do not wake up one morning and go, you know what? I'm just no longer a believer in Jesus. I'm not a Christian. From here on out, I label myself no longer a Christian. That's not where most of them do. A few of them do. Most of them, what happens? It's a drift. It's a drift away. And he's saying, you're in danger right now. And the reason why you're in danger is because you're listening to what is being said, but you're not really, you're mentally assenting to what's being said. You're shaking your head. You agree. You believe in God. But you are not actually living out this faith. You're not radically in pursuit of obedience and walking out your faith in Jesus. You're just, you just have a mental assent to, to what is being taught and what is being preached. You're hearing the words, but you're not actually listening to the words. Hello? You ever talk to somebody and they were hearing you, but they weren't really listening? Come on, all the spouses should have their hands up. Like, I know you heard me, but are you listening? Because you're in danger every once in a while uh, when I'm talking to my kids and I, and I want to get their attention and, and I'll say something, go, yeah, 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 dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, and I'll, I'll say, no, wait, wait, look, look. This is serious. This is real. He's saying, hey, 
Stop just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, this is serious. This is real. You're in danger right now. He's warning them. So all throughout Hebrews, we find encouragement and warning. Encouragement and warning. Encouragement. Jesus is better. Better than the angels. Better than all these other comparisons we're going to make. But then there's warning attached to it. Hey, if you don't get this, you are in danger of drifting away. Let me just say this. Serving Jesus, living for Christ, it's not a casual commitment, y'all. This thing called our faith in Jesus. I just got to tell you, Jesus and God don't do well as an accessory to your life. They're not a good accessory. They do not do well as extra. So I've got all this stuff in my life. I've got like, you know, this business that I run. I've got my family. And oh yeah, I have Jesus in my life too. He does not do well as extra. What he wants to do is he wants to be God and he doesn't actually play well with the other gods. He, he, he believes that he has to be at the top of all of that. It's not a casual commitment. It is a radical devotion to obedience and to faith and if you're here and you just mentally assent you shake your head yes i believe but you are not in pursuit this is the warning for you be careful that you listen so you don't drift away then he says for since the message spoken through the angels is binding and every violation and disobedience received it's just punishment. Again, he's going back and he's saying, hey, if, if you think they should have listened back when the Torah was delivered to the Israelites and the law was given and every, all the sacrifices and everything they were supposed to do, if you think you sh- that they should have listened to that, you should listen even more to the Son of God. He moves on. Verse whatever we're on. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Here's what he's saying. Hey, you remember the eyewitnesses that told you about Jesus? They were there. The ones that told you about walking with him, hearing him preach, the the healings that he did, the teachings that he taught, the death on the cross, the resurrection. He's saying, hey, you got to listen to them. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Don't forget what they told you. Don't forget these eyewitnesses that, that gave you this message. I want you, I want you just to understand this. Look this way, y'all. Those disciples that, that he's talking about, the disciples that walked and talked with Jesus for three years and then were nowhere to be found when he died on the cross. I mean, lickety-split, peace out, nothing to do with this. I don't want want to be crucified. I don't want to be persecuted. That's not my tribe. Sorry, Jesus. I know we were cool and we were camping out, you know, underneath the stars. We were traveling, you know, the world together and walking. And I know I saw you do some pretty cool things and all that, but I ain't down with all this. Those same guys, after Jesus rose from the dead, Everything changed, y'all. Those same guys, all but one of them was martyred for their faith. Did you ever stop to think that they actually had to actually see Jesus in the flesh, raised from the dead, to not recant for their faith? Hello? I mean, just stop and think about this for a second. 
If the whole thing was made up, <laughs> don't you think at some point one of them would have went, okay, okay, sorry, okay, wait. I mean, I don't even know what to say. We were like in a cave and Peter was rolling doobies and, 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 and you know, and then we made this whole story up about resurrection and all that. I don't want to die. My wife told me this wasn't a good idea, so forget it. I mean, don't you think one of them would have recanted if this wasn't real? Eleven of the twelve of them are martyred for their faith. Actually, it was ten, because one of them killed himself. That's a different story. They're martyred for their faith. And he's saying, hey, don't forget those guys who gave their lives. They're the ones that helped deliver this message to you that you're now thinking about turning away from. Do you ever stop and think about Jesus after he left the planet? And the fact that, and, and, and I dare you, don't just listen to my word. Try to dig up literature from the first century that recants that there was a man named Jesus, that he did die on a cross, and that he did rise from the dead. There is no first century literature out there that recants the story of Jesus and what he did. Do you know why? Because it's real. Because it's real. In fact, you don't find anything until like 250 A.D. from these guys uh, named uh, uh, Celsius and Porphyry of Tyre. In 250 A.D., they write something about how uh, it was all magic. Jesus did all his miracles by magic. And there was some magic potion that they drank, you know, that made them believe in the resurrection, which is like, (laughs) I'm sorry, you're going to have to come up with a better argument than that, you know? And you don't even read about that until 50, nothing in the first century. Why? Because they were there. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us over 500 people saw him. Verse 4, God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the author is saying not only did the messengers deliver this this news to us about them being eyewitnesses of Jesus, but then everywhere that, that this message was preached, there were signs and wonders that happened. There were miracles that took place. There were healings that happened that would follow the message. By the way, we should still be seeing that today. Signs and wonders, miracles, healings. He's saying, hey, There is no reason not to believe in this. Stop pondering. Stop chilling out. Stop reevaluating. Stop thinking about whether this is worth it or whether it's working. There's no reason to do that. You must believe. And here's what the author is saying, and here's what I want to say to you today. It's a simple statement that should have profound impact on all of us in this room. Here's the statement. Jesus is greater than all because he is God. He's not a made-up story. This is real, y'all. It's worth it. And it's working. Now, I don't know where you are at on your journey, but I would imagine that most of us in the room believe in Jesus. Whether or not you're here, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, and you go, you know, I I haven't bought into the whole Christianity thing. Some of that's because of what I see on the news and, you know, and the fact that it seems so much about politics and all of that. But, but, 
you know, some of you going, I don't, I don't know if I buy into the whole being a Christian, but I think I do believe that there was a Jesus. Well, I, I think most of us probably do. I mean, he's the most quoted, most, you know, well-known figure in all of history, you know, and, and so, yes, you know, but, but here's the issue. And, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Christ in here, you owe it to yourself, not just to listen to me, but to dig into this man named Jesus and find out for yourself if he was God, if his claims were true, that he was the son of God and he was God himself. When he said, I'm the way to the Father. No one comes to, to the Father except by me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When he made those kind of claims, you owe it to yourself to figure out if, if that's true in your own life. But here's what I want to tell you. Most of us in this room would go, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's good. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And we, we think of Jesus like, yeah, he was a good guy. Good guy like, he had like, you know, he just, he just did these great teachings. He had some good one-liners. And he just, didn't he just kind of want everybody to get along and just love each other? And, and, you know, and all that's true about Jesus. He did have some great one-liners, by the way. And he also wanted people to get along and to love each other. But I have to tell you, there's so much more to him than that. And here's what I'm afraid of. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes today. I'm afraid that you can have a definite de definition of Jesus that is from the Bible, but it's not biblical. Just write it down. I'll explain it. I know, I know it's confusing. Okay? You can have a definition of Jesus that's from the Bible, but it's not biblical. Let me explain. So let's say that there was a book written about Wayne. Okay? And the autobiography of Wayne was, was in that book. And so... Here's, here's the, the autobiography of Wayne, okay? So dust it off. Here it is. And so it, this, this encapsulates everything about me. It encapsulates the way I think, my personality, my aura, my Enneagram number, my Myers-Briggs scale. I mean, everything, you know, Wayne was encapsulated right here in this book. And and so what you needed to do to get to know me was to read this book. But, you know, instead of reading the book, you just flip through the book and you go, oh, oh, yeah, oh. <laughs> There's a picture of Wayne. I like that picture. He's a fisherman. I, I can relate. I, I'm a fisherman. Just wanted to show, I'm not showing off. I just wanted to show you that picture, you know. And uh, it's a pretty big one. And, and so you go, oh, yeah, that's, I like that picture of Wayne. And that's a really good picture. And you flip through it a little bit more and, Oh, yeah, 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 there's Wayne as a child, you know, and that's cool, I'm not going to hold that one up long, and, uh, and so I, I can relate to that, because, you know, I was a child, and, and uh, oh, I like this one, this is a nice one of Wayne, that's, that's cool, got a pink shirt on, real, real men are comfortable in pink, okay, and, uh, and so, yeah, I like that one too, cool hairdo, he's kind of, kind of a stylish guy back in high school, college, you know, and, and so I can relate to that one, and, and so you go, oh, oh, there's one. Oh, he met her. They fell in love. How awesome is that? That's a good one. I can relate to that because I've got a, somebody I'm falling in love with or I'm believing with all of my heart that somebody's going to come along, you know. Oh, there's, there's one. I like this one. He's in front of a restaurant. Wayne liked to eat. <laughs> I knew we had a lot in common. I like to eat too. And, uh, and so there's other ones in there. Wayne, you know, eating crawfish and, oh. I like Croft. I knew Wayne and I would get along really, really well. And so what you do is you pick up pictures from my autobiography and you create your own definition of who I am. 
But I got to tell you, there's way more to me than the fact that I'm a fisherman. There's way more to me than the fact that, that I, I found someone that I love with all of my heart. There's way more to me than the fact that I like to eat crawfish. This is what we do with the Bible. This is what we do with Jesus. Instead of reading the entire book to really figure out the autobiography of who he is, we just have certain pictures that we pick out that are from the Bible, but it doesn't paint an entirely biblical picture of who Jesus is. So we just go, oh yeah, here's the, we, we don't pick up the autobiography written by the Holy Spirit of who Jesus is. We, we just go, oh yeah, there's one. Oh, I like that one. He turned water into wine. <laughs> That's going to make the top five of my list right there. I like that one. Oh, there's another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, he healed that lady. That was so nice. I love Jesus when he heals people. That's so cool. Yep. Oh, there's one. He rebuked religious people, you know, that were, that were really climbing all over somebody that needed him. Ah, oh, he's, I like Jesus. He's so cool. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's the one-liner. It's the one I love. I love this one. Uh, it's the one where he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> I knew I liked Jesus. Ah, he's a good guy. Good teachings. Man, I love that story. That's a good one, too. I, I knew Jesus and I would get along just fine. But what we do is we pick out pictures of Jesus that are from the Bible without really understanding the full picture of who he is. Look this way, y'all. He's more than just a good guy that did some lighthearted teaching and had some great one-liners and just wanted everybody to get along. He is God. He's God. He's Lord over all. And he wants to be Lord over your life. And as the band comes forward, listen to me. Some of you go, what does this have to do with my life? to the intellectually convinced but non-committed. Look at this. If our definition of Jesus doesn't change everything about us daily, then we do not have a biblical definition of Jesus. If Jesus and the definition of Jesus is not biblical, then we do not have a biblical definition of Jesus that changes our life on a daily basis. Some people see Jesus as a supplement instead of a savior. Mm. They see Jesus, that, and as long as we conclude that Jesus is here simply to, to improve portions of our life rather than to give us new life, we will fail to understand who he really is. He's not just an addition to make your life better. He's not just someone that's going to make you more rich or more famous or add to your business or help you raise a family a little bit better. He'll do those things, but he's way more than that, y'all. If you can understand the name given to him was greater than any name that God gave to the angels. It was greater than any person on the planet, the Son of God, God himself, God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus called himself God. There is so much screaming in our ears, y'all. It reveals his divinity. It reveals his nature. Jesus is God. Look this way. This is where it gets practical. 
if he's God. That changes the way I want to treat my wife because I have to treat my wife the way he wants me to treat my wife. If Jesus is God, that changes the way I want to treat my kids. I can't treat my kids the way that I want to treat my kids. I have to treat my kids the way Jesus wants me to treat my kids. If Jesus is God, that changes my look on systemic racism and prejudice. I can't have my own perspective. I've got to have the perspective of Jesus on how I look at that subject. If Jesus is God, it changes the way I treat my enemies. I can't treat my enemies the way I want to treat my enemies. I have to treat my enemies the way that he wants me to treat my enemies. If Jesus is God, it changes the way I interact with people on social media. If Jesus is God, it changes the priorities that I have when I wake up every morning. If Jesus is God, it changes whether or not I decide that I want to be in a small group because if Jesus is God, i got to surround myself with other people that also believe Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, that means I have to train my children to understand that Jesus is God. It means that my greater responsibility is not just to put a roof over my kid's head and make sure that they're fed and make sure that they're loved. It means that my greatest responsibility as a dad is to train them to understand Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, it changes everything down to the fiber of my being. And it impacts every area of my life. He wasn't just a good guy. He wasn't just somebody who taught and had great one-liners. He wasn't just somebody who wanted everybody to get along. He's God. And for me, y'all, and for you, that changes everything. Every day. For the rest of our lives until we see him face to face on that day. One of the most incredible modern theologians, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, wrote this quote that I want you to listen to. Look on the screen. He said, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. See, Christian is not just a cultural thing that we do because we live in the United States. The word Christian and the word disciple are becoming two different things in our modern culture. I don't want to just be a Christian. I'm a disciple. Someone who is learning from him. Following him. Learning to live like him. Talk like him. Think like him. Why? Because my goal in life is to become more and more like God. So all I have to do is, is become more and more like Jesus.